So in my opinion, innovation should be like some kind of driving force of this world. Hello, and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 18. Today, we have the pleasure of celebrating a recent project that is near and dear to our hearts, the 2020 Ultimaker Innovators List. If you haven't had a chance to explore this online project, head over to ultimaker.com forward slash inventors, plural, to see the list that we unveiled just one week ago on December 15th, 2020. This project has been an Ultimaker-wide effort to put the spotlight on individuals or groups across the world who we believe are using 3D printing to transform the ways people work, think, and live. The team here at Talking Additive reached out to our 2020 Ultimaker Innovators List honorees and those who had nominated them and invited them to join us for interviews or even send us some remarks about themselves and this project so that we could share them here on Talking Additive. And as luck would have it, we were positively flooded with interview requests and with chances to learn more about these amazing stories. So much so that we have now initiated a new show segment on Talking Additive, Ultimaker Innovators Profiles. Today's episode will race through our new treasure trove of material, highlighting just a few of these remarkable individuals and teams. But we on Talking Additive are looking forward to sharing many more of these innovators' stories with our listeners in the coming months. In several cases, this chance to check in on subjects for the Innovators Project resulted in the creation of new entire episode-long interviews for us to share next season. And we just can't wait to do so. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within manufacturing and on the factory floor? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 18th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Ultimaker prides itself on solutions that are flexible, productive, and scalable. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. It is what the reader wants to, to take from it. It depends which profiles they read, whether they're interested in reading the whole lot or uh, just some of them. What better way to approach our topic today than to start out with considering what the Innovator List is? The 2020 Ultimaker Innovator List is the first in what will become a yearly celebration of 3D printing technology and the impactful results that can be achieved through its use. As the project landing page declares, innovation is a driving force behind Ultimaker and we encourage and support the advancement of the 3D printing industry. As such, we believe that those working within the industry should be celebrated, especially those who are using 3D printing to create, improve, innovate, and transform at high levels. From architecture to manufacturing, from automotive to healthcare, and everywhere in between, we believe the 2020 Ultimaker Innovators List is a great way to send off the year and start a new one. Now let's hear from some of the team members who helped to forge this project. 
I'm Adam Kohut. I'm a copywriter on the Ultimaker content marketing team. It's important for Ultimaker to celebrate innovation across the 3D printing industry because that's what we're about as a company. Innovation to me is all about transformation. And what we see from the profiles and the people and the organizations and the groups selected for the Ultimaker Innovators list, they've all done something to transform. And whether that's the way people think, the way people learn, the way people live, the way people create a, a part, that's what innovation is, transforming the way that we do things. I'm David Robeson. I'm the Content Marketing Manager at Ultimaker, and I was part of the project team behind the Ultimaker Innovators list. So the concept of the Innovator List really came out of a desire to celebrate the entire 3D printing community as it is in 2020. As desktop 3D printing technology has matured, I think it's easy to look at it from the perspective of the, the users splintering off into separate groups, depending on what type of printer they have, how they use it. So you have the people using it for projects at home, people use it professionally to drive financial results, people using it for education and research or to help others. We wanted to bring all these different worlds together and show they all have a lot in common. And not only that they all use 3D printing to achieve their goals, but also the, the lines between these groups, they often blur. Like the hobbyist brings their 3D printing knowledge to the factory they work at, uh, or the student brings theirs into a future career. We wanted to show that the whole 3D printing community is, is connected. And I think also that 2020 really proved this as well, even after we thought of the initial idea. Everybody, you know, manufacturers, makerspaces, vendor showrooms, people in their garages, the whole community offered some kind of help and support during the COVID-19 pandemic. But at the end of the year, we had a list that, that really brought that together. The mix of medical and community uh, maker projects really does reflect the whole community. The list was born probably almost a year and a half, a year ago, uh, shortly after I joined Ultimaker. In laying the foundation for and creating the Ultimaker Innovators list, I, I took a lot of inspiration from the ESPN body issue. And it sounds strange because nobody's naked on the Ultimaker Innovators list. But I, I, I think it's a really cool thing that they do every year. And they, they highlight the best bodies in sports. And it's these big, colorful profiles. And it has a little bit about each athlete. And it's men and women and everyone from sports, from all over the world, from any sport you can think of, is there. And it's a celebration of not only physicality, but of sports in general. And that's what we were aiming for the Ultimaker Innovators list, is not celebrating necessarily 3D printing, but the people behind 3D printing. That's very important because without them, there would be no 3D printing. So one of the challenges that we had when we decided to launch the Ultimaker Innovators list is that we were, we were starting completely from scratch. And we're also trying to do it this year when you know, traveling to meet with people was especially difficult. So actually bringing together this list with no background, no last year's list to inspire people, um, and all the other challenges that came with it really meant we had to think about how we could draw this from the connections that we already have as Ultimaker. So we went through our, our teams across the business and members of staff from across the company submitted the people that they knew from their work, their networks, who they felt were showing innovation that really fits with Ultimaker's vision of how 3D printing can transform the way we make things. And then we drew together the list from those suggestions and it quickly became apparent just how broad it was going to be that we had people from the biggest manufacturing companies in the world alongside people making their own things at home, hospitals, schools, design studios. And that was just from the connections within Ultimaker. So even though we had these challenges, we quickly felt that we had exactly what we needed to start creating this list. 
I think it's also important to remember with this being the first year, especially, it's not a, a contest or a competition. We're just we're building the platform with the first hole to make it innovators list. And we want to make this even bigger, even broader, even more open to, to everyone around the world next year. And once we've built up a bit of a reputation with the first group who, who we feel reflect the community um, of innovators that we're a part of. The Ultimaker Innovators list is now a look at the 3D printing industry as a whole. We're calling it the 2020 list because we mean it to be the first in what will become a yearly celebration of innovators within the 3D printing industry. For 2020, we've looked at people doing great things in the 3D printing industry, not only in 2020, but in the relatively recent past. We really want this to be as modern as possible and as current as possible. So each year there are new things, the technology is evolving and the stories are evolving. I think the Ultimaker Innovators list is a really important step for Ultimaker. It's about celebrating the field of 3D printing and putting human faces to these stories and to the industry as a whole. And I, I'm very excited about it. I think that it's it's a great list this year. It's a great start to something that's going to become a, a pillar of what Ultimaker stands for. And now let's embark on a wild carnival ride through the voices of nominators and innovator honorees alike. In this episode, we'll hear directly from many of the innovators themselves, as well as from Ultimaker staff nominators, who can't wait to introduce their 2020 picks. Some of these voices may be familiar to Talking Additive subscribers from past episodes. Some of these voices are likely to return to spend more time with us in future seasons. But in all cases, these represent some of those bravely blazing new directions for our community and industry, and we welcome them. First up, Terri-Anne de la Cruz, who you may remember as one of the application engineers we featured in episode 17. She participated in nominating candidates this year. Hello, my name is Terri-Anne de la Cruz and I'm an application engineer. Officially, the definition of the Ultimaker Innovators are people who use 3D printing to achieve transformative results in any capacity. But for me, these are the people who are brave enough to try something new for a cause that is bigger than themselves. They were brave enough to, to make mistakes because they want to achieve something that no one else has ever achieved before. And that's what makes them inspiring. And that's why we have this innovators list. These are the people who want to help people who are physically handicapped, people who want to use recycled materials. It's like everyday stories like this where people use their own talents in order to help others and help the environment. So excited about this Ultimaker Innovators List project. And I hope that our listeners also get inspired by them as they have inspired us. And in return, I hope that you will inspire others as well. Thank you! Next, Steven, who was part of the Innovators List Committee, along with me, who will introduce us to his honoree. My name is Steve van der Staak, and I'm a content marketer at Ultimaker. Basically, what I do is I create 3D models, photography, and video content. Innovation is the backbone of our company, and seeing what others do with 3D printing is great. It truly is an eye-opener to look differently at the world around you. Seeing applications and techniques from other people, it's often the inspiration for the application that I create, so I can actually do my work faster, better or more efficient. This project really serves two purposes. It inspires readers with what's possible, 
and it celebrates the innovators because I think they really deserve this. Yeah, the one that really stood out for me was Adi Pandic. I've traveled to this region. He lives in Bosnia-Herzegovina and they suffered a lot from the war. But Adi is a forward thinker and he wants to make a change. So he started hosting workshops to teach modeling and 3D printing for industrial use. And this way, people who actually suffered from the war, they had a new chance to find work again. So his helpful attitude, it, it was also visible when a Corona started, for example. He worked together with the United Nations to set up print labs and together with them, they printed over 5,000 face masks. So that's extremely impressive. Right now he's doing research to infotypes and how they influence object strengths, which is very important to engineers around the world. My name is Adi Panjic and I'm senior research assistant at Faculty of Mechanical Engineering Sarajevo on the following courses fields as mechanical materials and joining techniques welding within the department of mechanical production engineering. I'm also a PhD student in field of 3D printing materials where I'm researching influence of infill pattern design on mechanical properties of 3D printed materials. Uh, your colleague, Steven, he sent me an email that Ultimaker would like me to take part in a new project that they are launching at the end of this year. I met him a few years ago over Facebook, but never met him in real life. He's an amazing guy. He helped me a lot. He heard about what I did with my team here in our country. When someone mentioned to me a, a word, innovation, 3D printing and 3D scanning immediately come to my mind. It's still phenomenal technology for me, even after years of use, which is a great innovation, and it is constantly evolving. So in my opinion, innovation should be like some kind of driving force of this world. When we are working with our students and helping them, we are doing all that for free. Because we know our situation here in our country 20 years after war. Uh, we want to help our new generation to teach them all new technologies that we know. And I think it is amazing to work with young engineers full of ideas with this amazing technology that turned their ideas into reality. Now we are looking at our students how building their own 3D printers, new machines, they have their own companies. I'm sure we have teach thousands of students to do 3D design and 3D printing and use that to turn their ideas into reality. We are trying to teach them to work in those softwares and to use this technology, 3D printing technology, and give them the courage to start their companies and their startups. We were first in Bosnia who started to build face shields. We also gathered makers from all over the state who have uh, 3D printers, teamed up with them and made an amazing organization where we showed the great power of 3D printers when the industry stopped. In this situation, we received many donations and support where I opened a new laboratory on my faculty for testing polymeric materials with focus on 3D printed polymeric materials. And in that period, we bring, I think, around 30 or 40 Ultimakers 3D printers to our country on different faculties, schools, and other organizations and make 3D printing even more and more popular in our country. I think Stephen, he saw, and, and every day he can see what I'm doing in field of 3D printing. And that is why he invited me here to be part of this project. 
my goal after my PhD is to open new courses at the faculty with a focus on 3D printing materials and their investigations. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Kurt Matsuo, and I'm Channel Sales Director at Ultimaker in the Americas region. Innovation is one of the keys to any successful organization. Innovation challenges the status quo and often goes against current trends. Being at Ultimaker for five years, I've seen lots of innovative products, add-ons, and uses across many different fields. I nominated Dr. Gokul Krishnan, founder of Maker Therapy. Maker Therapy is a U.S.-based organization that designs patient-centric makerspaces in pediatric settings such as hospitals to support technologically rich learning experiences for hospitalized and chronically ill children. In these Maker Therapy makerspaces, 3D printers are one of the most important technologies that young patients use. Added manufacturing technology empowers, inspires, motivates, and uplifts young patients by allowing them to design and create meaningful objects and tools that directly improve and enhance their experience, well-being, and mental health while hospitalized. My name is Dr. Gokul Krishnan. I am the founder of uh, Maker Therapy, an innovative pediatric care uh, experience that designs uh, creative and uh, technologically rich makerspace environments for hospitalized and uh, chronically ill patients and their families. So in the field that I'm working in, which is in uh, pediatric care, innovation for me is about developing novel experiences that can support young patients by uh, focusing not only on the present, but also on the future, providing opportunities for these young children and uh, teens to explore and express who they are, who they dream of becoming, and the impact they can make right now. So when you give young patients access to 3D printers, they come up with ideas that are creative and potentially game-changing. Let me give you uh, an example of a 16-year-old girl named Hadley who has an uh, autoimmune disease. So Hadley comes to the uh, children's hospital once a month for infusion treatments. Receiving an IV treatment can be uncomfortable, uh, scary, and painful experience for uh, people, especially young kids. The cold fluids that enter the veins below body temperature can be um, rather unpleasant. So if the individual has smaller veins, the pain can be worse. So Hadley decided to develop a solution uh, to this problem by designing an IV pack warmer device to mitigate the pain associated with the flow of cold fluids directly into her bloodstream. So using 3D printing in the hospital makerspace, Hadley created a flexible prototype to wrap a warming pack around the IV bag on the pole keeping the fluid warm during transfer. This device could uh, you know, potentially help thousands of patients like Hadley all over the world. You know, just imagine a space where every pediatric setting or treatment center where chronically ill patients um, uh, can become makers, uh, doers, and inventors with access to technologies such as 3D printers. And so in these spaces, children and adolescents are empowered to control their environment learning and well-being. In the healthcare industry, 3D printing primarily focuses on medical applications driven by design experts and uh, healthcare professionals. 
for 3D printing to have a more significant impact and meaningfully change how 3D printing is used in healthcare, patients should be a core part of the design and innovation process. So if we give patients access to tools and technologies that enables them to design and innovate, improve their medical experience based on their personal circumstances and share their creativity with the healthcare community. Co-design among healthcare professionals and patients and broadening access to the use of 3D printers among patients, particularly among uh, young kids who are in the prime of learning and development, will lead to the most transformative solutions. Patients are experts of their own experiences. They know what it is to be in the hospital for weeks at a time. They know what it is to live with a chronic illness. It's impossible for us to say, you know, I know what it is to, uh, to go through chemotherapy because I haven't. You know, the privilege of working alongside young patients over the past uh, seven years has allowed me to see these patients not merely as sick kids in the hospital, but rather as uh, bright, inventive kids who have the potential to design, create, and live fuller and healthier lives. You know, I launched Maker Therapy because I believe that young people, regardless of uh, diagnosis, need rich learning opportunities and creative outlets that encourage growth, playfulness, and a sense of achievement. Next, Matthew Forrester from L'Oreal, returning to Talking Additive again after our very first episode. And stay tuned for a further discussion with Matthew in episode 19 as well. My name's Matthew Forrester, and I'm working on additive manufacturing deployment within L'Oreal for the technical side. The main achievement for us is the empowering of our teams, being able to give these guys tools so that they can make their ideas become real. It's such an untapped resource, being able to give these guys, especially the ones that are in, in the factories, these machines which they can quickly use to, to iterate, change parts, change materials, without having to go through a complicated purchasing process or through a potentially dangerous machining and milling cycle. It means that you can get parts out really quickly and, and, and iterate. It's changing every day, but at, at the moment, we've had a huge success from the, the internalization of prototyping. So tens of thousands of, of parts now being produced all across the world from our marketing brief, the optimization being done by our design offices, and then these physical parts and prototypes which are being made. These physical parts are now not just nice-looking aesthetical prototypes, but we're working now with materials which behave like the real parts. So when they come off, off the printer, they're, they're acting like a bottle, they're acting like a cap, and we can use that to make informed decisions. And then we have, people call it jigs and fixtures, but it's really the industrial side of using the printers to improve line efficiency, to reduce weight on machines, reduce wear and maintenance. This is the big gain for this year. We're seeing a huge acceleration and a huge take up by the teams. And accompanying that, obviously, is the, the upskilling, the training, these guys making their own knowledge centers and sharing it back out into the ecosystem, which is, it's not a hardware thing, but it's as important as the hardware to make sure that there's good results coming off of the machine. That's really a huge explosion this year with the gains coming off of this. Since the last time we spoke, we've had COVID hit us and, and we've seen the massive gains that we can get in agility, the advantages that 3D printing and, and localized production can give us. 
where we're having problems with supply chains and manufacturing. It means that we can quickly provide a solution, allowing us to uh, react very quickly to this landscape, which is changing so much faster following the, the pandemic we're hopefully just coming out of now. Going into the future, we're going to try and leverage this and use it as we move forward with what I'm hoping for is the speed of the machines to increase, which is the blocking point for us. And to be able to have an accompaniment of CAD software, which everyone and anyone can use, because the training is still something which isn't the easiest thing to do. And there are people with a load of ideas. We're not printing because they need to, to learn how to draw it in CAD first. If we can democratize that, there is another whole huge untapped resource to get into. What we're looking at now is how we can move to scale production of finished good products for our consumers and bring them real added value by doing it, not just putting 3D printed products out onto the market because 3D printing is cool, but really what's it going to give us? Is it going to give us a more reactive supply chain? Is it going to give us personalization for the consumer? Is it going to allow us to use materials which are better for the environment than the ones we're currently using? It's really pushing the technology to its limits to see what we can do for that. And so just as we close off this year, we're putting in place a, a closed loop material recycling system so that the waste coming from our plants is used to make the 3D printer filament, which is then used to make the parts for our plants. And it goes round and round. It's done. We're in industrial deployment. My name is Arvind Krishnan, and I am an applications engineer at Ultimaker. I help customers use our materials, our 3D printers effectively to succeed in their applications. I nominated Jeremy Robinson from Kawasaki Motors to this list. The breadth of prints that Jeremy uses his Ultimaker 4 is truly fascinating. He does conceptual prototypes, often printing maybe five, six iterations a week to finalize the design and more importantly, how it fits in his bike before moving on to making the part maybe out of metal. He also creates functional prototypes and does testing often with 3D printed parts. When production is low and the loads are not high on the part, Jeremy also produces end-use parts that directly go on the bike. His job entails two main functionalities, long-term design changes to improve the performance year over year, and also in the short term, once a race is completed, let's say over a weekend, he has 48 to 72 hours to understand a potential problem, find a solution, and implement it before the bike goes on the road again to the next location for the next week's race. This is where 3D printing's quick turnaround is really helpful. So my name is Jeremy Robinson, and I work for Kawasaki Motors Corporation as part of the Monster Energy Kawasaki Racing Team. We participate in the Monster Energy AMA Supercross Championship and the Lucas Oil Pro Motocross Championship. We race our, our KX 450 motocross bike in those two championships. We have a couple of top-level riders who we support. We have a full fabrication and CNC shop here where we're able to find specific solutions for, say, if a rider wants a different height of foot peg or handlebar position or something to custom tailor them to the bike, we can provide that for them. I've looked at some of the other people on the innovators list, and, and it's incredible what some people are doing these days, truly changing lives with, with 3D printing, with prosthetics and, and things that are being done in the medical industry. We're obviously not doing any of those things. We're... we're 
playing with motorcycles. So it's a little bit different for us. But innovation for me is something we pursue every day in racing because we always try to be better than the competitor. To me, innovation means changing and adapting. It means trying to improve what you're doing and finding solutions to different problems. The way we innovate here is not only are we trying to improve our results on the racetrack and beat our competitors, but we're also trying to improve ourselves and and the way we work. We're trying to be more efficient. We're trying to do better quality work. So yeah, it's a matter of looking looking at your processes and and thinking about how you can improve them and, and how you can be better every day. We use 3D printing in a number of different ways. We do the traditional print of a prototype design to check to make sure the design works, to make sure it fits, the form fit function test. 3D printing is, has advanced lately just because of the materials that are available now. It's as much that as the hardware these days. So with the different materials that are available now, we're able to make durable parts that stay on the race bikes and, and they live up to the heat and the chemicals and, and the environment that they're in the dirt and the abrasion and all of of those environmental parameters. We make everything from the prototype part that'll later be machined out of a metal perhaps to parts that that stay on the bike. And we use a lot of glass-filled nylon. We use a lot of straight nylon on our bikes for clips to organize the wires because we had a data acquisition system on our bike. So we can record a lot of the parameters while the rider's riding. Those things don't come standard on the bike when when a customer buys it. It's a matter of us adapting that system for our race bikes. Now that we have 3D printing at our fingertips effectively, we're able to go straight to making a, a nice bracket or a clip to hold things in place. We go overboard, I guess, but our mindset's changed completely. And, and now the first thing we think of is, well, can we print a part? very proud of our program here at Kawasaki with our abilities to basically make anything we need. We use 3D printing in in so many different ways from making tools and organizers to finished parts. We make molds to pour polyurethane for different parts. There's 3D prints all over the shop of different solutions for measuring tools, organizing tools, fitting tools, parts, prototype designs. It's crazy. It's funny to think about where we are now compared to two years ago when we talked about getting a 3D printer. Somebody asked me, so what are you going to do with it besides print these couple parts that you want to print? And he says, well, I don't know. You know, it'll grow. It'll it'll organically grow into something. And I'd say it's definitely grown into a huge part of our program here. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive Ultimaker's 3D Printing Podcast. This is a critical time for industry to adopt 3D printing practices within aspects of manufacturing processes, safety, and efficiency as a part of stabilizing and strengthening this field in our new global economy. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs, machines, and teams all across the world that have remained open and fully operational even during these complicated times. Enjoy talking additive? We'd appreciate it if you would subscribe and post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. It really helps us. We also encourage you to explore past episodes with some of our favorite Ultimaker Innovators List guests, including Matthew Forrester at L'Oreal, Captain Brad Baker from the United States Naval Academy, Matt Terosian from Jabel, and more.
we will now return to our Ultimaker Innovators List honorees for episode 18. My name is Mariska. I am a quality engineer for the quality department in research and development. Working for Ultimaker is also feels like a family. I'm specialized in software. We basically test all the products that get pushed out and we make sure it has as little bugs as possible. So the person I nominated is Lida Weitzwillard and she 3D scans female bodies, their, their busts, and she makes custom bras with a 3D printed element and it will fit your exact body. And it's really cool because I cannot find any female friends that does not have trouble shopping bras. It was also hilarious to explain to my colleagues why it's so important to have a good fitting bra and why there are so few people in the world right now that have good fitting bras. She started as a graduation project at the same university where I graduated. And then she started her own company with it. So now she has this little office and then she can have people come in and then there's a fitting room where you make a 3D scan and then they alter the 3D scan to have the perfect end results. And then based on that, she makes both the 3D printed part and she also sews the bras that come with it. And then you have a custom bespoke bra, which is really cool. They're a bit above my price range <laughs> because it's a, yeah, it's a fashion object. So they're a bit expensive for me. I think the process is really tricky. I think she's sitting on a piece of knowledge that not a lot of people have. I think she has exactly the right skill set to do this. It's a great application of our technology because you can buy swimming goggles in the store and they will probably fit you, but it's way cooler to make a 3D scan of your face and make sure that you have perfectly fitting goggles just for your face. Because your body isn't symmetrical, but in all the designs, they assume that you are. I think she's using her knowledge and her skills as an engineer and her knowledge of 3D printing to really help solve a problem that not a lot of people see. And I think that's really cool. My name's Ian Falconer. I'm the founder of a small company called Fishy Filaments. We're based down here in Cornwall in the UK, and we recycle used fishing nets into materials for 3D printing. My background is in mining and mineral processing and uh, raw materials of many different sorts. I've worked on oil rigs and in quarries and mines. And I first encountered 3D printing when I was working in the city of London, doing some research for a large mining company. And they wanted to know what their markets would be in 50 years' time. And they were mining titanium and vanadium, so two metals that are common in metal 3D printing. And I came across the technology then, and it just struck me as a, a really great place to be, a really great set of technologies to get it into. I went away from that and uh, started working for myself, looking at how to bring some of these metal 3D printing technologies, added to manufacturing technologies, to a, a wider audience, because at that time, it was basically an aerospace and military-grade uh, technology. There were very few run-of-the-mill manufacturing companies using it. Uh, we're talking about 15 years ago. I was working to see what I could do with some more common metals like copper and adjusting some of the properties of copper for, for th additive manufacturing. And I, I reached a logical point with that where I could either go out there and try and raise a million dollars for a bit of blue sky research, or I could use the skills and experience and, and maybe target uh, some different parts of the same technology suite. So I looked around and I've always been interested in sustainability and environmental aspects of manufacturing. 
and it didn't take me long to find the problems with plastics recycling. And it's a very quick reapplication of skills and knowledge to, to polymers away from metals. So over just a matter of a, a two or three weeks, I switched focus from metals to plastics to polymers and fishy filament was born. It didn't take very long at all. The variant of the overnight success after 20 years, the problems in polymers are pretty much the same as the, the problems in metals and the skills and experience are very transferable. But there's different sectors of the industries working at the time was very different. The, the desktop sector in polymers was really starting to come out. The, the patents were starting to fall away from those big three or four companies that were patent holders. And Ultimaker was breaking out at that point as well and, and capturing my attention with their wooden build-own kits and that kind of thing. And Adrian Bowyer with his RepRap project was there and really spurring on a, a desktop revolution, if you like. And uh, it was completely the opposite corporate structure where metals was very much the big blue chips, the giants of industry. Polymers seemed to be an open door to a much smaller, much more dynamic, more local, more personal way of using 3D printing. For me, if you're not challenging yourself and challenging other people with your action within the innovation space, then it's not really innovation. You're making change either for yourself or for other people or for the world. So it, it's all about challenge. Fishy filaments is really challenging the idea of scale and localization. The technology itself is super basic. I and mean, our core innovation is really simple. It's just a way of washing plastics. And it's no more complicated than that. It, there's technique and those twiddly bits, but the thing that I've brought to the market really is how do we compress the whole supply chain of a polymer down to a point and then give it sufficient quality that you can then put it into a, a genuine manufacturing situation. So from the boat through our recycling plant to a 3D printer is no more than 50 feet. And we don't bring any chemicals to the door and we don't put out any chemicals out to the other end. We've collapsed that whole supply chain that might be to China and to back and to America and then back and multiple legs. We're taking that right down to where you are. And, and that's everything that we do is localizing all of those aspects of the supply chain. And that gives you so many extra things over a simple kind of carbon equivalent efficiency. So obviously you're stripping away all of the transportation of materials and parts and that's all gone. But you're also stripping away the extra administration. So you're taking out costs of administration, of crossing borders, of taxes. You're bringing high quality employment to the, the harbour side, you're giving people the opportunity to engage with a, a leading technology stream in 3D printing, additive manufacturing, and apply it to a new area of industry in, in maritime and fishing. Not typically the highest technology pusher as, as an industrial sector. So we're bringing together all of these different positive aspects in social, environmental, and in economic, and we're bringing them right down to that point. And, and that's really a kind of a multiplier for, for fishy filaments. We, we're, we're doing so many things at the same time. And while we say we're, we're very, very much focused on sustainability, environmental sustainability, we're not just doing that. 
we we really want to to bring those benefits of, of collapsing those supply chains down to a point to everywhere. So every everywhere has its individual point, and the idea of Fisher Filaments uh, design of its recycling plant is to be able to put these modular plants everywhere around the world where they're needed. My name is Michael Peroni. I am the Chief Operating Officer of Victoria Ham Project. So Victoria Ham Project is a Canadian not-for-profit organization with a mission to provide low-cost 3D printed prosthetic and orthotic devices to areas where access to this care is very difficult. So in many areas of the world, people just do not have access to this sort of care. It can be due to the high cost or a lack of infrastructure to actually make the devices. So what Victoria Ham Project does is we partner with locals in the community. So we'll be medical professionals, technical experts, and we will train them on how to actually manufacture the Victoria Hand and soon orthotic devices themselves. When I first approached the Victoria Ham Project, four years ago, five years ago, about being part of the project. It was the beginning of desktop 3D printing. And I think we had some of the first desktop 3D printers at the university. To see how far it's come in that short amount of time and how many people I now talk to who have 3D printers at their home and they're just doing fun little projects where they want to help out with Victoria Ham Project. It's pretty amazing how far it's come and it's It'll be really exciting to see in another five, 10 years where it's at, the quality of the parts, the cost of the printers, everything like that. The 3D printing is a big part of Victoria Ham Project. So the hands that we give to people are all 3D printed, except for a few screws and pins, cabling, but the main structure of the hand is 3D printed. And one of the most important parts is a custom socket that goes over the limb. So we use 3D scanning to create a custom forearm socket or a custom upper arm socket for transhumeral patients. And it's really the 3D printed socket that is the key to this. We say it's almost like if somebody has a prosthetic that they don't like, they don't find comfortable, it's almost like having a pair of shoes that can be so nice, but if it's uncomfortable, you aren't going to wear it. So that's what we make people think of uh, with the um, prosthetic devices is you want comfort, you want good fit, you want it to just become a part of their body so they can naturally move. They can easily pick up different objects and just get back to their way of life. The Victoria Hand Project started off with one hand model and it was, we call it like the V100, the version one hand. And it was pretty much a hand that was made of aluminum and Delrin, but just 3D printed. So from there, after it was trialed in Guatemala, we you know, took the user feedback and we created a new model of the hand. And it was much stronger, much more aesthetically pleasing, had better functionality. And then from there, we have just continued to iterate this design through the years. We normally are fitting people with an amputation below their elbow, but we're also working on technology for people that are missing their arm above their elbow. And in December 2018, we adopted LimbForge Technologies. So they worked with Ultimaker on the Healing Hands for Haiti project in Haiti, and they produce very aesthetically pleasing cosmetic arms. And we adopted LimbForge. Now we're able to offer this technology in some of the other countries that we operate. 
And then in October 2020, we actually released a new hand model that we call the version 300. It is 3D printed just like our previous models of the hand, but then we have also uh, incorporated laser cut steel into the hand. And part of the reason that we did that was because we just wanted to make the hand stronger. We wanted it to have better functionality. And we did a lot of testing in our lab and it's significantly stronger. It's easier to put together and it's now only a hundred US dollars, which you know is pretty inexpensive for a prosthetic device. So I would say that innovation is taking different objects or tools or ideas that you know, aren't really related and combining them in a unique way to serve a new purpose, which, you know, can achieve new goals. So I'd say Victoria Ham Project does fit this with combining 3D printing with prosthetics and orthotics, and also the model of going into communities and training people on how to use this technology, how to produce these prosthetic and orthotic devices themselves. I believe that 3D printing is an important tool for many different people uh, working on various different types of projects due to the ability to quickly and inexpensively iterate designs. I found that in, in our lab at the University of Victoria, we are you know, constantly changing the hand model when we are producing a new hand model, updating it even multiple times per day, depending on the part. And we can just put it on the 3D printer, let it go, and then we can test it out after. Whereas with other techniques, which we have used in the past, it's very slow to get a new part. If you make a, a slight error in dimensions using traditional manufacturing, it can, you know, really set you back time and money. And that's why we really love 3D printing. And now, as our headliner, just at the end of this episode, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Adrian Boyer, the founder of the RepRap movement, the man who triggered so much of the activity now happening within 3D printing by asking two provocative questions. Can we make this technology many factors cheaper and more accessible? And can we make it self-replicating? He then open-sourced his idea as a cunning ploy to intrigue curious individuals and universities all across the world to join him in the thought experiment to break the stagnation of industrial additive manufacturing and bring many more perspectives and potential applications to this technology. With many thanks, here is Dr. Adrian Boyer. My name's Adrian Boyer. In 2004, I had the idea for the RepRap project, which was a project to make a 3D printer that copied itself. And we decided to make that open source. And the result was a large number of machines now being sold and made all over the world. I certainly didn't invent 3D printing. That goes right back to the 1970s. But it was I who had the idea of making machines open source and the idea of making them print themselves. As an academic engineer, I first encountered it decades before that. I mentioned it started in the 1970s. The first time I encountered the idea was actually in the joke column in the back of The New Scientist, which was written by a man called David Jones, who wrote under the pen name Deedlers. And in about October 1974, he had an idea, which, as I say, presented as a scientific joke, that you could take a vat of liquid plastic monomer 
and shine a laser through it and cause it to solidify along the path of the beam because the beam would cause the monomer to polymerize. And then he had the additional idea that you could have two intersecting beams and cause polymerization just to happen at a single spot in the liquid. Anyway, this was all hugely entertaining and completely impractical. But, of course, that idea, a few years later, turned into SLA 3D printing. So that was my very first encounter with the idea, reading that joke in the back of the magazine. But then, as you say, around about the turn of this century, the British government gave my university a very large sum of money to buy equipment. And rather surprisingly to me, the university gave me the job of deciding how to spend quite a considerable fraction of it. And I decided to buy two 3D printers, as we had none at the time. And these were expensive pieces of industrial equipment. Uh, and the cheaper one that we bought cost about fifty or $60,000. That was the strategist. And they duly arrived, and we started using them for making bits and pieces of equipment for research projects and so on. And almost as soon as we got it, I realized that we'd finally, by we humanity, had finally acquired a technology that stood a serious chance of being able to copy itself simply because it's so versatile in the shapes that it can manufacture. Uh, more versatile, quite literally, than any other manufacturing technology. So that was the genesis of the idea. Well, I mentioned that the machine we bought, the cheaper of the two machines we bought, was, was about fifty or $60,000. The RepRap project got that down by, by a factor of 100. And it's not often that a technology changes in price by a factor of 100 in a few years. You expect technologies to reduce in price as people get more familiar with making them work, but an economy of scale and so on. But in fact, this sort of wasn't an economy of scale. This was moving in the opposite direction. This was just making individual machines. And it turned out that you could make one that was almost as good as the $60,000 machine for $600. And that was the principal reason, I think, why the whole thing took off. The section of the engineering department at, at Bath University where I was working that I was in was the manufacturing section. Though I'm not a manufacturing engineer right, by training, my PhD was in the study of, of friction, tribology. The reason I got involved in manufacturing is because of the mathematical work I'd done on geometry. In the mathematics department, I was largely concerned with solving geometrical problems. And the engineering department that I joined had uh, a man working in it uh, called John Woodock. And he is one of the principal researchers who, back in the 1980s, was creating three-dimensional geometric modeling software for engineering design. And he was also concerned with using computational representations of shapes in order automatically to manufacture them. And he and his colleagues wanted me to join because they wanted me to bring my geometrical expertise, such as it was, to, to this activity. So that was the route in which I, I got into manufacturing, defining shapes to make things. The reason I was employed in the mathematics department as an engineer was not because I was an engineer. Indeed, they confessed to me after they had offered me the job and I'd accepted it, that they were very doubtful about employing an engineer as a mathematician. One of the interesting things about having worked in both worlds is that you go into a mathematics department and you discover everybody looks down upon you as an engineer. You go into an engineering department and you discover everybody looks down upon you as a mathematician. But the reason they employed me is because they got a grant, which they were going to use to pay my salary. And that grant was a consequence of the two men who employed me, uh, Peter 
Peter Green and Robert Simpson, they uh, had just invented a Voronoi diagram algorithm which was specifically two-dimensional, which is an important subclass of the Voronoi problems. It, it's something that allows you to do all sorts of things in, in geography and in zoology and across a wide range of, of subjects where you've got two-dimensional problems to deal with. But the idea, the geometrical structure, extends up into any number of dimensions, and in particular, for example, in three dimensions, it's very useful in crystallography. And though they didn't employ me to do this, one one night, quite literally, I woke up having realized how to solve the multi-dimensional Voronoi diagram problem. So I had an algorithm, at least I thought I had in my head, to, to solve Voronoi diagrams not just in two dimensions, but in three, four, five, six, and indeed in, in other spaces than Euclidean spaces as well, Euclidean space being normal X, Y, Z space. So I had that idea, and the next morning I phoned my boss, Robin Simpson, and said, look, I've had this idea of Sunday morning. And he said, oh, pop up, we're having breakfast, and tell me about it. And when I told him, he said, yes, I think that'll work. Uh, stop doing what you're doing and implement it on the computer, and let's see if it really does work. And so I did, and it got published in a paper in the computer journal, and is now the way in which these things are calculated. I should say that at the same time as I was doing all this, there was a, a man called Watson in Australia who had exactly the same idea as I, and I was completely unaware of his work, he was completely unaware of mine. And we both wrote papers on it, and they arrived in the computer journal mail on the same morning. And the editor opened these two papers <laughs> and found he had two completely independent papers saying the same thing on the same day. And the, they did a very fair thing. They decided to publish them both because there was no precedent. So by, oh, by, by good fortune of the mail, had Watson's or mine been delayed by a day, who knows what would have happened. But there we go. Uh, by the time I got to the RepRap project, I spent several decades working on geometric algorithms for the representation of three-dimensional shapes. And, and indeed, one of the things I discovered as soon as we got a 3D printer is that these machines all use the world's very worst data format for specifying shapes, which is the STL file, which no sane computational geometry would ever come up with that. As a mechanical engineer, I feel I can say it looks as if it had been made and designed by a mechanical engineer. It, it's terrible. Because I knew how the algorithms that work with all this geometry work, I knew all about how to do slicing and how to do offsetting and all that sort of thing, because those are common problems in making manufacturing systems work with computational geometric representations of shapes anyway. Obviously, the machine needed mechanical design, but that was my background anyway from my undergraduate and postgraduate time. And finally, it needed electronics. I mentioned that I worked in computing as well. They'd asked me, the university in which I was employed, to set up the microcomputer department when microcomputers just came in. I was working in mathematics and software at the time, but I also knew enough electronics to design these machines. I had a background in mechanical engineering, electronics, and geometric software, and that all came together. I say I created it. Of course, I didn't create it. A vast team all over the world, volunteers, created it. And being a lazy sort of chap, I, I decided that one of the advantages of open sourcing the project was to get a whole load of people working on my idea rather than me having to work on it myself. And, and that turned out to be rather successful because people were... Um, rather flatteringly interested in the principle of the whole thing. Of course, 
it's only an accident of history that we didn't come this way as it were in the first place. You can imagine a 3D printer having been made in the 19th century, working in the same way as a jacquard loom works with punch cards or whatever. You could imagine that some sort of additive system, possibly not working plastics, they didn't have plastics of course, but they, they had ceramics, they had clay. And you, you could imagine that might have been done 150 years before it was actually done, but it just happened that it wasn't. Things happened in the sequence that it happened, but there's no technical reason why uh, it had to wait for the advent of the computer any more than we had to wait for the advent of the computer to weave a complicated pattern in a carpet. Thank you again to all of the many Innovator honorees and Ultimaker staff members who contributed their voices to this and upcoming Ultimaker Innovator Profile segments. We hope that you have enjoyed our 18th episode for the Talking Additive podcast, featuring the 2020 Ultimaker Innovators list. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn via hashtag TalkingAdditive, all one word. In two weeks, we will return with episode 19, our final topic episode for the season, adopting 3D printing within your organization. We will explore a number of methods by which several individuals have spread the message of 3D printing within their organizations, drawing from the first two seasons of Talking Additive and including a few follow-up calls with past guests. This episode will look at what it really takes for companies around the world to introduce, embed, and regularly use additive manufacturing technology to achieve the previously impossible. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at TalkingAdditive.com. Thanks again to all of the Innovators List honorees and nominators for joining us for this episode. Our series producer is Hannah Gabrielle Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, music and episode sound mix by Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.